During the month of May, if you remember, we did a short series called um, How Should We Then Live? It's a phrase, a question that uh, Francis Schaeffer, philosopher back in the 70s, um, 1970s, and uh, uh, had, had written some books and some videos about. That question has weighed and continues to weigh very heavy on my heart. Probably some of you feel the same way. And I, I've been wrestling a little bit this last week, last couple of weeks. Why is that so heavy on my heart? Like, like what changed? Well, the truth is a lot has changed. In fact, if you kind of take a, um, a century, a, a hundred years ago, a lot has changed in a hundred years. And then if you take kind of my age and, and say, okay, what's happened in the last half a century, a lot has changed. Well, if you go the last two little plus years with uh, a virus and everything else, a pandemic, everything else, a lot has changed. Frankly, a lot has changed in the last month, the last two weeks, and who knows what's gonna happen in the weeks ahead. I'm a person who tends to like change. My wife will tell you, Kathy will tell you, you like change. I like improving, I like tweaking and making things better, building things and, and repairing things. But in our culture, that's not the kind of change that has taken place. We've gone the other direction. There's a lot of what they call deconstruction, and, and some of that is actually good, but the vast majority of it isn't. Uh, pulling things apart, but ultimately, one of the biggest changes I see more and more and more of is a culture, an entire globe, that is rejecting anything that resembles anything of that is God's expectations for mankind. In fact, this last week I was reading an article and I would be happy to pass on with some of you. I was actually rereading it because when it first came out, it had an impact on me. But the name of it is, it's written about a year ago. It's called The Six Ways, Six Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism by Michael Graham. He's a pastor in um, uh, Orlando. And it was a fascinating read. And what he was describing was how churches, those that would call themselves evangelical in some way or did call themselves evangelical. It used to be that we, were, we would organize ourselves, which you could call dividing, but it, we were organized around our theology and what we believe. You know, Presbyterians uh, are called Presbyterians because of their form of government. We're called Baptists because uh, our tradition was we were not going to, to baptize babies like the Roman Catholics. We were going to baptize uh, by immersion. That's what we're known for. And so we were, we were organized around our theology. But now we've become organized around our ideology and how the church is to interact with culture. And right now it's a mess. I mean, it is a mess. And my heart is breaking over the disunity of the church. And, and God, is just, it's weighed on me to the point where um, we as elders are going to wrestle through that, especially this fall, and we're going to schedule a retreat to, to get away and talk through some of this, because we have to continue as a church to figure out how God's word instructs us how to interact with culture. And that, that, that's hard, it's complex, and we may not all agree, but the one thing I believe we can agree on is that God's word needs to be the authority, and it is God who is the final authority. What happens is that we need to look at God's word. We need to pray and we need to discern and we need to believe what God wants us to do as his followers of the church together. But with all that said, 
I do know some things that aren't changing. Actually, specifically, someone who isn't changing, and that's our Heavenly Father. And his holy word, the revelation that he gives us, is not changing. And so I want to remind you that sometimes when you come to church, it's going to feel like a broken record because we're going to keep saying the same things over and over again because God's word says the same thing over and over again, and that's what we need. And we have to continue to immerse ourselves in what God has to say. And the only way we're going to be able to make sense of what's going on around us is to stay immersed in his word where we keep our eyes on him and we keep our ears hearing him so that we're taking what's in the word and it's getting down into our heart. So let's hear today what, we, what God wants to say through the prophet Micah. Let's watch an overview. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moresh in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. Or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with a poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake. But he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Michael goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion. God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. 
The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first part of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who is sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles to, and turn to the last chapter, chapter 7. What I'd like to do is just kind of zoom in a bit on um, the end of it, and we'll maybe draw some references from uh, the rest of it. Appreciate 
Um, Pastor Mike teaching through Obadiah a few weeks ago, uh, very much a, a message on humility rather than pride. And then Pastor Carly and uh, One Love. Are we? Uh, we probably. I don't know. Have we turned the lights up? Um, Mike, I don't know. Do you know how to do that? I don't, it may be tied to the system. So, um, Mike got demoted from the worship band and got promoted um, to the booth there. So, um, by the way, thank you for coming at ten. Because the reason that we kind of combined it is I get more preaching time. We can combine both services, the preaching time, into one. I'm kidding. No. Are you kidding this week? It is just Sophia at home. So uh, we're going to do all kinds of fun stuff with all the rest of the kids there. Uh, we've got some stuff planned there. But, okay, uh, chapter 7. Uh, appreciate Pastor Carly walking through Jonah last week. Thank you. Um, and uh, God's a God of second chances, and uh, he used uh, Jonah that way. So uh, think of it this way. As we focus in on the last 13 verses, I want us to be reminded about what Micah is telling us about God and his covenant relationship with his people, but also with a sinful, broken, fallen world. So hear the word of the Lord in, um, in Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. He says, rejoice over me, O my what? What's it say there? Enemy. Here, let's switch colors. Um, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. What's the until? If we go back here to verse 8, he says, the Lord will be a light to me I'm getting ahead of myself. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, this is the enemy talking, but where's the Lord your God? My eyes then will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. I'm going to give you four statements today, four truth statements about God and his covenant people. And we're going to talk about how we also are his covenant people from Israel moving into a new covenant. We are his new people there. But what we're going to see more importantly is how his relationship with us impacts the nations, impacts the enemy, impacts those who do not follow God. So here's the first one. As we read through these verses, God rescues his people in order to humble his enemies. You can read back through there. In fact, uh, for those of you that are in the Bible reading plan, Micah's right around the corner here as we're gonna read this together. But uh, I wanna think of it this way. There's a couple things I want you to note in these verses. Here's the first one is that um, the truth that God rescues his people, sometimes we, it, it just feels out there. Because we don't tend to think, okay, God is rescuing us all the time. We don't, we don't kind of think that way. But I think it's important to bring it back down and realize 
that, that God is a personal God. In fact, I think that's why Micah is using the first person here as, let, let's bring it down as how, even though it's representing a whole nation, it's the one individual saying, I'm, gonna, I'm in a relationship with God because he's a personal God. And he's gonna say, my enemy, I fall, I shall rise. I sit in darkness, I have sinned. He pleads my cause, he executes judgment for me. I think you and I need the reminder often that scripture teaches that God is a personal God. You know, sometimes we, we struggle with that tension where we, we don't think of him as a, a personal God. We, we think of him as out there, distant from us. That's what we call the, uh, the transcendence of God. But over here is the imminence of God is just as truthful, and that is he is near us. He's a personal God, and he, he's in a covenant relationship. In fact, he established a covenant with the nation of Israel, obviously through Abraham, but very specifically through Moses as he brought them out of Egypt on Mount Sinai. He says, here's how we're gonna be in a relationship with each other. Here's what the covenant's gonna look like. And then all of that kind of fell apart because of their disobedience. And Christ comes along and rescues and says, here's the new covenant. And everyone who is coming to him is in that new covenant relationship with him. So God is rescuing his people from their enemies. His enemies are also our enemies. That's why we use the phrase, uh, it's his enemy, but it's also our enemies. He's a personal God. Here's the second thing I want you to note in this section here. God's judgment isn't just on his enemy. He, notice in how he says that um, in verse um, uh, eight or nine, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, why? because I have sinned against him. So I think that's a good reminder for you and I is that um, uh, it's not an us versus them. Like, like we're the special uh, people that because we've got it together. No, we're God's special people because of his grace. And we're no better than what we're seeing in the world out there apart from God's grace in our lives. Amen. We're just as much in need of grace. He's a personal God. His people need rescued because they're sinners too. But I want you to look at one more thing, verse 10. This, this really grabbed my attention. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, what's that question? Where is the Lord your God? Where is the Lord your God? Those who do not know God those who do not love God don't get God. They, they don't understand. They don't have that relationship with him. And that question is one that you and I had better get used to hearing all the time. Because the more faithful we are in following him, those around us are gonna say, well, where's your God? Where's your God? And I wanna remind you and I that we have to have an answer though. But think of it this way we don't always have to have an answer for them. I'm encouraging you today to have an answer for yourself. And, and that we believe deep inside, I know where my God is. I know where I can, because he's living in me. And, and I have his word. And so that will then overflow. And yes, we will have times to respond to that question, to say, let me show you my God. But 
more and more, they're not going to get it. They're going to continue to ask, where is the Lord your God? And, and they're not going to get it. And we need to be, in one sense, okay with that and trusting our sovereign God with that. Because most of the time, they're still not going to believe, but we need to believe. So God rescues his people from the enemy in order to humble his enemies. Let's see what else he does. Verse 11. Remember he talked about New Jerusalem. That was back in chapter, it was, it was earlier on, I think four and five. Here's where he, he describes this. A day for the building of your walls. It's coming. Like Jerusalem's gonna re, be rebuilt. And in that day, the boundary shall be far extended. Now oftentimes when you, you know, tear something down, it's just common to rebuild bigger. Although uh, this last week, uh, kind of in my downtime, I just didn't want to think. I wanted to be amused. Uh, I'd go to the Welcome Center that had Wi-Fi, and I would download some shows to watch in my cabin because I had no cell service or a Wi-Fi there. And so the show that I watched, probably six or seven episodes, was called Tiny House Nation. And I'm going to try to convince Amanda that when we get the kids out of the house, that we can do a tiny house. <laughs> I love that idea. Less responsibilities, less things to fix. It would be great. And then she would actually have to be near me in the house because we've got a big enough house that she's like, I'll go over there, you stay over there. But anyway, when, when you tear something down, the American way is you build it bigger. That's not what we're talking about here. Jerusalem, as it's rebuilt, it means that it's authority. Its reign, its influence is going to be bigger and bigger. And so that means that God's reign is bigger and bigger because here's why. In verse 12, it says, in that day, they will come to you. Well, what, what, so, so Jerusalem is new. Who's going to come to Jerusalem? They're going to come from Assyria. Wait, those are the enemies. And the cities of Egypt down south. So up north, down south. And from Egypt to the river, to the east, and from sea to sea, east and west, and from mountain to mountain. Basically, everyone is coming to Jerusalem. Well, why are they coming to Jerusalem? It says, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Everything else is gonna be wiped out because of their rebellion against God. But God says, no, I, I'm gonna rescue some of you. I'm gonna bless you by building New Jerusalem. So think of it this way. God's gonna restore his people in order to bless the nations. There's a, a beautiful picture. If you look through all of our scripture, we see that God doesn't just bless his people for their sake. In fact, that was part of Israelites' pride, the, the, the Israel's pride, is they thought that, that it was all about them. And God says, no, I'm, I'm blessing you so you can bless others. In fact, if we go back, uh, the video referenced this, but go back to Genesis chapter 12. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you, make of you, a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, what's it say there? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God had a plan all along. In fact, let me just kind of draw it this way for you. I'll see if this works. 
We're going to draw it like a cone or an arrow or whatever you call this. Okay? We're going to put Abraham here. That's an A, by the way. We'll make it this way. A. Abraham. And then Abraham's son is who? Isaac. Isaac. His son is? Jacob. Okay? I'm testing your... We'll put it spell it here, Jacob. And Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes. And out of the 12 tribes comes Jesus. Okay? And then out here, all of the nations are going to be blessed. Why should we be thankful for this? Because we're the nations. We're the Gentiles. When you look at all of just the fact that we have brothers and sisters from every tribe, every tongue, and Revelation talks about, which by the way, I think we might study Revelation in the fall, but I haven't fully decided that. But we look someday is that all of the nations, all tribes and tongues are gonna be gathered around the throne, giving him glory and giving him honor. Well, where did it start? With Abraham. Okay. And then it went to Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. Well, the 12 tribes thought they were all that. We're, we're, we're the special chosen ones. And he's like, no, 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 I'm gonna restore my relationship with you so that you can be a blessing to everyone else. Now, on a smaller scale, that should remind you and I that God saved us to be a blessing to those around us. You don't get to just keep it to yourself. Ooh, I got salvation. No, 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 we, we get to give it to others. Let's keep going. God's relationship with his people has an impact on the rest of the world, but verse 14. Now, when you're writing poem, poetry here, who's talking to who shifts quickly. So now there's a shift here to where uh, Micah says to God, shepherd your people. Like, like you're in charge, shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance. Be our leader. Guide us. And they, they understood what shepherding was all about. Who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. So they're in a forest. That's not the place for, for a herd to be is not in the forest. Where do they, should they be? Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. If you remember, we, we actually, you saw these, these names, Bashan and Gilead, back when we studied Amos. But he was getting in their face. He called them, oh, you cows of Bashan, because they were getting fat from grazing and they were treating the poor people in, with, with injustice incredibly. What he's saying here is, no, let, let's go to Bashan and Gilead because they got the best grass, which... Driving up through Michigan, I must have seen a million road signs for cannabis up there because it's legal everywhere. This isn't the kind of grass we're talking about here, okay? This is good grass for the herd. Like, God, take your people to where they can be fed. And then he says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, remember he took them out of land of Egypt and eventually into the promised land, he says, I will show them what? Marvelous things. So now here's where the voice shifts and God says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Well, what is going to happen when he does that? Verse 16 says, the nations shall do what? They'll see. So they're gonna watch God do marvelous things for his people. And what's their response? And be ashamed of all their might. 
This really hit me. July 4th, okay? patriotism, we celebrate our, and it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. But every nation out there, I don't care who it is, they, they want to be mighty. They want to do, they, they control their borders, and sometimes that means conquest, and sometimes, but it can lead to an arrogance that says we don't want anything to do with God. And we're gonna try, and, and the nation of Israel was over and over again, says you're being like your neighbors up there who think they've got it all together. Well, when the nations watch what God does for his people, they will be humbled. In fact, they'll be ashamed of all their might. Like, we try to do it on our own. What they're gonna do is they're gonna lay hands on their mouths so they'll shut up. Their ears shall be deaf, they can't hear. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. Why? Think about this contrast. They shall come what? What's the word there? Trembling, Trembling out of their what? You usually don't tremble when you're coming out of your strongholds. That means God's doing something powerful. And in turn, they shall turn in dread to who? The Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you, God. This, I had to have an R, so just bear with me here. God resources his people. He gives them stuff. He gives them, they're grazing. He's showing them marvelous things. God resources his people in order to bring repentance to the nations. Do you know it's okay for God to show off? Yes. It really is. God, God can do this. He's allowed to. He's God. And frankly, I like it when he shows off, when he does good things for us. We, we, it is well with my soul is a powerful song. But... The way we can say them, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I, I just can't bear it anymore. Like, I, I just got to say, it is well with my soul. And when we recognize the depth of our sin and the greatness of our salvation and what God does, hopefully, those around us will see that. And hopefully the spirit is working in their heart to show them the greatness of what God does. Now I'm not, I, I just, I can't fully grasp what all this looks like here. But I think a glimpse of it is this. Can we as his followers today be more expectant? Where we're fervently anticipating God to do something. And then when he does, Lord willing, there's unbelievers around us who are gonna recognize who God is. I'm very much convicted that I don't just normally think this way. I, I've realized that, that I'm too often immersed in the culture around me that I don't expect marvelous things from, the God like, from my God like I should. I know that we, we can't just conjure up, okay, God, just do something magical. That's not how it works. To just do some kind of m magic thing. But the question is, are we looking for it? Tom has really challenged me on this, is that are we expecting God to do supernatural things? Are we expecting him to do marvelous? And, and I, you wonder, that scripture seems to indicate this, is that if we're not expecting it, he's not gonna do it. That's right. And so, folks, let, let's expect God to do more. 
Let's expect him to do supernatural, miraculous things where those who don't know him will be like, whoa, I need him. And, and I need to repent and I need to follow him. God, bless your people. Take care of your people. Now, again, we, we live in the already but not yet because some of this can happen now, I believe, but it's gonna happen in much bigger ways exponentially as a promise for the future from God. One more section, my favorite section, verse 18. Talking to God, obviously, who is a God like you in these ways? Hardening iniquity, passing over transgression, just overlooking it like we're going we're gonna to move beyond it, for the remnant of his inheritance. That word remnant is a, is a key word in this whole book and throughout the minor prophets because as God's people, because of their rebellion, go into, um, um, go into, where the enemies take, um, I can't remember the word right now, but it don't matter. They're, they're going away from God. God says, you're going to be punished. Um, exile, going into exile. Only some are coming back. And that, that idea of remnant moves into the New Testament that wide, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. You and I are not going to be in the majority. It's just that believers don't expect to be in the majority. We'd love for everybody to get saved, but that's not what scripture teaches. More people are gonna rebel against God. So that remnant, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. But watch this, it says about God. He does not retain his anger forever. Oh, that's a wonderful promise. Because he delights in steadfast love. I think they use a different translation in the video, but this is the Hebrew word hesed, and you're gonna see that over and over again. Steadfast love, steadfast love, steadfast love, everlasting love, compassion. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Wipe it out. God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and hesed, steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's finish with this. God redeems his people for his renown. God redeems people so he gets the glory. Who is a God like you? Salvation brings glory and honor to the one who does the saving, not to the one being saved. Amen. The guy who gets rescued from the water doesn't say, hey, everybody, look at me. Like, look what I did. No. It's the ones who reach out and rescue. They're the heroes. He's the hero. Jesus is the hero. The world right now, more than ever, feels like, probably not, but probably feels like it, they've got their own religions. 
They've got their own false gods. They always have and they always will until God makes everything right. The God of power, little g. The God of sexual freedom. The God of pleasure. The God of race. The God of intellect. The God of technology. The God of religion. The God of the self. On and on and on. But Micah says, who is a God like you? And the answer is, no one. No one. Think about how easy it is to come to church and we've got one God, right. the God. Like, like, it makes it easy. Okay, we're not, we're not, there's no other person. There's no other ideology. There's no other thing, object. There's only one God. Let's keep that in mind as we gather at the table this morning. Our God pardoned our iniquity. Our God passed over our transgression. Our God does not retain his anger. Our God has compassion on us. Our God walks all over our sins with his big feet. God walks, he casts our sin into the ocean. Our God shows his steadfast love through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, we didn't have time this morning, but Micah predicts some things about Jesus. So go find it. Look at that and, and, and think that through, okay? I didn't even have time to, Micah 6, 8, it's a powerful verse, but you've heard it before, so I'm not covering it today. So there's more to Micah, so go read uh, some Micah this week. Let's take a few moments. I'm just going to invite you to, uh, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then you're just going to spend a few moments in prayer and come up and receive the elements, and then we'll stand together and take it, and then we have a special closing song. So let me pray. And uh, in fact, uh, the name of our, our closing song here is called Unstoppable King. It's the Micah song, and I'm going to let Bill tell you a, bit, a little bit more about it here in a moment. But would you just join me in prayer, and then I'm going to invite you to come receive the elements. Father, um, thank you for having a loud voice. We have named this series Major Messages from Minor Prophets, and you are speaking through your prophets And we're thankful that we have your word to hear these today. Would you continue to help us know who you are and and the truth about who you are would stand out among the noise of the culture around us. That we would be united together at Gateway and beyond of of just how great you are. And today we've learned that uh, you... You have blessed your people. You've redeemed and rescued and and, um, resourced and all these good things for us in order to show your enemies how great you are, but also to show us how great you are. Bless us, help us, encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.